This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is Part 4 in our series on the creeds. Because most of the creeds were the product of a council of one kind or another, when dealing with the creeds, we then have to talk about the council that produced them. But the creed that we're looking at in this episode, the Athanasian Creed, it was not the product of a council. And, like the Apostles' Creed that we looked at in the first episode, it almost certainly wasn't composed by Athanasius, just as the Apostles' Creed wasn't written by the Apostles. The origin of the Athanasian Creed remains a mystery. Athanasius, you'll remember, was an elder at the Church of Alexandria, and he accompanied his pastor, the Bishop Alexander, to Nicaea for the council, where together they were some of the chief voices arguing against another elder from Alexandria named Arius, who'd gone off the rails about the deity of Christ. Following Alexander's term as Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius took on that role, and in the years that followed, though Arianism ought to have been a moot point after being nailed into a theological coffin at Nicaea, it managed to go zombie and began once again chewing on the churches, many of which once again were infected. Athanasius stood against this tide of resurgent Arianism, sometimes seemingly all alone. In fact, at times, the political winds blew against him, and he was exiled for standing for Nicene Orthodoxy. Think of Athanasius as a general leading an ever-shrinking number of troops in a war of theology and doctrine. If we were to single him out for one thing that he clung to, it was the Nicene tenet that God the Father, God the Son, share the same substance— in Greek, the word homoousios. While Constantine deferred to the wisdom of theologians in settling the Arian challenge, following emperors weren't as skilled as he. They were Arians and allowed the heresy to reemerge. Since Arianism was the accepted doctrinal position of court, it became politically expedient for church leaders to toe the line. Athanasius refused to allow politics to corrupt either himself or his church. For this, he was exiled. At one trial, when told that everyone else had gone over to the other side, he replied, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. He spent 17 years in five different exiles by four emperors. And as much of a champ as Athanasius was, he almost certainly had nothing to do with the creed that bears his name. Athanasius died in 373 and never mentions the creed even once in his writings. The next three creeds following his death never refer to it, as they almost certainly would have in the formulation of their creeds. On the contrary, the creed bears the marks of the work of those creeds, our best evidence is that the creed came from the churches of North Africa that had been influenced by Augustine. In its earliest use, the Athanasian Creed wasn't called a creed. It was called the Faith of Athanasius. And like the Apostles' Creed, it derived its relevance not from its author, but rather to the truth that it expressed and how it expressed it. Probably the first evidence of the creed that we have was connected to Caesarius of Arles about 502. He transcribed the entire creed in a preface to a collection of his sermons. He said that he was attaching the creed, quote, 
because it is necessary that all clergy and laymen as well should be familiar with the faith, unquote, so that they would know what to teach. By 1090, the medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury linked the Athanasian, Apostles, and Nicene creeds as the Tria Symbola, the three creeds that comprise the core of the Christian faith. The creed wielded major influence also during the Reformation. It lies at the opening of the Lutheran Book of Concord, along with the Apostles and Nicene creeds. It's used by several Reformed churches, and it was mentioned approvingly in the Augsburg Confession, the Formula of Concord, the 39 Articles, the Second Helvetic Confession, the Belgic Confession, and the Bohemian Confession. Luther said the Athanasian Creed was, quote, the most important and glorious composition since the days of the Apostles, unquote. Calvin considered it one of the, quote, three symbols, unquote, that stand forever alongside God's word. Church historian Philip Schaff wrote of the Athanasian Creed, quote, this creed is unsurpassed as a masterpiece of logical clearness, rigor, and precision, unquote. High praise. But the creed was rejected by the Greek church because of its position on the Holy Spirit. The creed consists of 49 articles divided into three parts. The first addresses the Trinity, relying heavily on Augustine's ideas, and going so far as to quote him verbatim, making it pretty clear that it wasn't written by Athanasius, since he died when Augustine was still young and still a pagan. The second section defends the dual natures of Jesus that the Council of Chalcedon had explained in 451. Now, we'll get into a lot more detail on all of that when we take a look at the councils of the 4th and 5th centuries. The third section of the creed is a list of condemnations for those who refuse to the assertions of the creed. Well, that part of the creed has proven to be difficult for those who don't want their opponents consigned to some kind of verbal damnation. But the fact is, most of the early creeds and confessions had a list of what are called anathemas. That is, beliefs considered unacceptable in light of the beliefs that had just been articulated as embodying the Christian faith. Kind of, if A is exclusively true, anti-A can't be. Okay, enough jawing about the creed, let's read it. But, before we do, I need to clarify a word, and that's the word Catholic. We find it a lot in the writings of the early church. It doesn't mean a denomination or a branch of the church with headquarters in Rome. The word Catholic simply meant universal. When the church fathers wrote or spoke of the Catholic faith, they meant the faith that all genuine Christians believed. Okay, here we go. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, 
nor three infinities, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Ghost Almighty. And yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Ghost is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the essence of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the essence of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by assumption of the manhood by God. One altogether, not by confusion of essence, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their works. And they that have done good shall go into everlasting life and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except the man believe truly and firmly, he cannot be saved. Now, surely you noted how very careful this creed handles the issues first of the Trinity and second of the two natures of Christ. Let me share a brief word on that. Theologians have long discussed how almost any attempt, air quote, to explain God, and specifically the Trinity, is destined to end up saying something that's just not quite right. And that not quite rightness becomes a toehold for misunderstanding and the genesis of error that can break out in heresy. Either God is made out to be three gods, or the three divine persons of Father, Son, and Spirit are turned into a messy, amorphous mishmash that does nothing but confuse. 
The reason for this is because to speak about God as a trinity as the Bible presents him requires a vocabulary and philosophical background that is different from speaking about literally anything else. God is categorically separate from all subjects. God is God and nothing else is. When we're dealing with the Trinity, we're entering into what theologians call the aseity of God, that is, God as he is in and to himself. Since God is perfect and infinite, he will always transcend his creation, of which we are a part. So while we struggle to grasp how the Trinity works, don't get frustrated if you find that your understanding falls short. Rather, take comfort in that. For a God that you could completely understand would be a God too small to worship. The essence of worship is awe. We need to have the sense that we stand in the presence of something infinitely bigger and beyond, or worship has no fuel Because of God's gracious self-revelation, we can apprehend him, but because of his infinity, we could never comprehend him. Given this challenge in calling what the scripture tells us about the Trinity into a succinct statement of faith, the Athanasian Creed, well, it's about as careful and thorough an attempt as is found in all of history. It describes the core doctrine of the Trinity, then sets boundaries to prevent misunderstandings. The Athanasian Creed guides us through key qualities and attributes that are shared by all three persons of the Trinity. God is uncreated, unlimited, and eternal. The wording of the Creed may at times seem a bit thick and heavy-handed in its repetition of God being one in essence but three in person. And whenever you see something like that, well, understand it as a clue to the historical setting that birthed it. A neo-Arianism had risen that pretended to be faithful to Nicene Orthodoxy, but it was in fact a return to the idea that while Jesus and the Holy Spirit are God, they are less God than the Father, who alone sits at the top of a divine triangle. Now that was the position of royalty and some of the emperors because it allowed them some wiggle room to attach themselves to a position at the top of society with everybody else below them. Some have wondered why, for goodness sakes, the early Christians didn't just chuck all of this arguing about the Trinity and go for simple monotheism. Well, the answer to that is simple, because the early Christians didn't have a choice. Scripture is God's word, his self-revelation. So if it says that there is one God, but three persons all claiming to be that God, then that meant God is one in essence, but three in person. So why not go along with the ideas of Sibelius in the early third century? who said that there was one God, but he had chosen three different modes to reveal himself in. That he had revealed himself as the Father with Israel in the Old Testament, as the Son Jesus during the Incarnation in the Gospels, and as the Spirit after Jesus' ascension. This idea was called Sabellianism or modalism, and may I say it persists to this day in some groups. Again, modalism simply doesn't square with the scriptures. Only one view does. Classic, orthodox Trinitarianism accommodates all of Scripture. And yes, that makes things difficult for us because it's hard to reconcile intellectually. But the more that one meditates on the Trinity, the more blessing and goodness flows from it. We see that built into the very nature and character of God is the reality of relationship and mutuality, fellowship and sharing. The creed ends with a bold but terse comment that those who believe its tenets are saved 
but those who reject them are eternally damned. And, as you might well imagine, that's raised a hue and cry for many years. There are those who have no problem with others stating their beliefs in bold, clear terms. But then to say salvation lies in agreeing with them, while failure to do so results in condemnation, well, wait just a minute there, pal. Back the carriage up. Who are you to tell me what I have to believe? Consider this as a, well, probably poor illustration, but it may get the point across. Bill tells Ted that he has to eat or he will starve and die. Now, what would we think of Ted if he told Bill that that was a very narrow way of thinking and that Ted's deeply offended by Bill's certainty? Ted's not hungry and is disturbed by the thought that a failure to eat would result in his death. Now, in a situation like that, we judge Ted as being unreasonable because we know the connection between food and health. People who take offense at the creeds for saying, believe this and live, don't and die, well, they're kind of like Ted. They assume that heaven and hell aren't settled destinations that all people end up in. They assume that there's some other way than the one that the creed is so careful to plot. The authors of the creeds weren't aggressively drawing a fence around the faith to keep people out. They were rather posting big, bold signs pointing to the only way in. Amen. Mm-hmm.